You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. And welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxon. On today's show, we have forays into theatre and the visual arts. Later in the show, I'll be talking to the University of Missouri theatre director, Claire Seiler, about the theatre department's production of the Every 28 Hours plays, which opens later this month. But first, I am delighted to welcome to the studio three students of art and design, Marcelise Cooper, Robin Haithcote and Colton Becker, along with instructor Nicole Johnston from the Department of Textile and Apparel Management, who are all here to talk about next week's undergraduate visual arts and design showcase. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Hello, Hello thanks. <laughs> what a great and busy studio. I love it when I love it when all the seats are taken. <laughs> So, Nicole, the Undergraduate Visual Arts and Design Showcase is now in its fourth year. What is it exactly and how did it all come about? Well, this was a dream of Jim Spain's. It's provided through the Office of Undergraduate Research. And it is really a professional development opportunity for students. They get an experience of learning how to display their work and interacting with professionals about their work. And they also receive some award funding, potentially, to develop more of their professional career. And how, how did it all start? Why, why just four years ago? Why hasn't this been going on since, you know, 1950? <laughs> it, was, it was quite a quite an undertaking to get all of these different departments on campus together right. um, to hash out what we really wanted to do. And after that initial, that first year, it took over a year of meetings and things to really pinpoint what Jim was wanting and, and get that implemented. And Jim is the director of the Undergraduate Studies Program. Um, Linda Blockus is actually the director. Okay. Um, Jim Spain, I believe, is um, vice chancellor for Undergraduate Studies. And so this isn't just one school. It isn't just a school oh, no. of digital storytelling or visual art and design. It's across architecture and textiles. and. Made. Yes, it, it brings in such a wide variety of departments. We do have, like you said, architectural studies. We have theater, lighting design, and costume design, fine arts, digital storytelling. We also even have floral design in wow. this year and textile and apparel management so it's it's a wonderful experience having all these students display their work in one place and so before the showcase existed what opportunities were there for undergraduates to display their work and be seen by a wider audience well i think most of it was the big george caleb bingham art gallery mm-hmm. on campus there there weren't a huge amount of opportunities outside of that gallery space i don't think and the students are shaking their heads <laughs> <laughs> <That's correct. laughs> um, so you know we have anywhere you know from 70 to 80 applications and right. this year we have 48 students who get to display their work so there are there are more that apply to submit their work. So there is a kind of a pre-jury process where you yes. choose the 50 or so students that are going to be included. Yes, and those are actually selected by committees that are formed in each of the different divisions and departments. So the committee, the planning committee for the showcase doesn't isn't really involved in any of that. 
that original selection process. It's the faculty members who are working with the students. Um, they get to make the, the decisions for who's in. And the students don't have to enter, so it's not kind of part of a course requirement. It's up no, to them to put their own initiative in and, and get their mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. submitted. Exactly. So each year you bring in a keynote speaker. You've had photographer Michael Eastman. You had Sarah Lean, who's a director of photography at National Geographic and also a Mizzou alum. Urban installation sculptor, who I saw, Janet Eckelman. She did a great talk. In this year you have Brandon B. Mike Odoms, whose work resides at the intersection of art and resistance. So tell us a little bit about Brandon and why his work resonated with the organizing committee. Well, we do actually have a committee member who is friends with B. Mike. Uh-huh. <laughs> friends helps. in high places always helps. <laughs> um, but we are, oh, it's so exciting to have him come in this year. He did actually have three panel exhibits um, on display outside at the Super Bowl this year mm-hmm. in Atlanta. So hopefully um, some view- some listeners got to see his work this year. But they the, the panels really um, celebrated Atlanta's roles in the civil rights and social justice movements mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. And so we're really excited to see what he's going to bring about that kind of work that he does. Right, art and resistance. Mm-hmm. Let me turn to the three student artists we have in the studio. Marcelise Cooper is the photographer and filmmaker. Robin Haithcote is the photographer and Colton Beckett is an architect and musician. And you all won awards in last year's showcase. So Marcelise, tell us about the body of work you had last year called 20-something that won you an award of merit for artistic expression last year. So for me, uh, it was a a triptych. It was a three-photo series, and um, they were all surreal portraits that were able to, um, I guess, kind of, for me, I, it was my year that I turned 20, mm-hmm. um, as the title <laughs> might lead you to believe. Uh, and I had a lot of fears going into it, just about my own kind of um, sense of identity and security in, in certain ways. Um, worries about my friends, you know, like people who were, there was a lot of people I had met freshman year that weren't here anymore because of uh, things like finances or like addictions. And, and I just had a lot of things I wanted to kind of get out of my head to mm-hmm. think about it. And I chose to do that for photography. And I, I know like uh, I, there's a photo of me in there and my, my hair's pretty big because uh, I kind of <laughs> let it, I'd let it go for a minute because I was just working on um, stuff for the showcase and I'm standing in the middle of the Missouri River <laughs> with my face painted white. It looks very eerie. I remember when I showed my mom the photo she was like, oh, Marcellus, what are you doing in the river? It's like 15 degrees. Uh, but no, it was uh, for me being able to get the uh, award of merit for that series it was absolutely, I, I was kind of like the I was a little flabbergasted just because I felt like I put a lot of work in and um, my mentor, uh, Katina Bitsikas, had been very supportive and helpful in deciding what to do for the series because I'd shot, I think, 200 photos for each of the concepts that I did and it really came down to trying to figure out which ones could get across what I wanted to say the clearest. And uh, that year, I believe, Michael Eastman was the one that spoke and he was very... uh, him along with the, the judges were very um, encouraging in their advice for what I should do going forward. So I think just like the experience of being able to put it in the show um, was really fantastic. So did what he say to you change ha- how you went forward with your photography? It made me understand that there's a certain amount of value you have to put in your own voice. And just also him sharing his kind of path 
and especially him going, I believe he went to Cuba to photograph mm. certain um, aspects of uh, of uh, the country, and just understanding that there's always going to be a photograph that is closer to what you should be working on. <laughs> and and he told me that one's the one you should be working on, the one of me in the river, which made my my. Uh, it made my ideas definitely start to lean more towards more abstract surrealism and putting myself in, in weird uh, situations, but it's fun. I feel like it's helped me kind of figure out what it is that I want to do after graduation. But now this year you have not submitted photography, you've submitted uh, videography. That's correct, yeah. So tell us, give us a, your elevator speech on what you've submitted this year. <laughs> what we've been working on that. <laughs> so I had a nightmare in October. I tend to have a lot of either dreamless nights but I tend to have nightmares that are very real, uh, real and visceral and I, w- I woke out of it in like a panic uh, next to my girlfriend and I described to her seeing myself grow claws and uh, I was trapped in a, a cage where the bars were like white hands and the crowd was laughing at me and there was people just like they were paying to see me and it felt so real and very um it almost like, it made me think of like a, an old like German um, black and white film, very like mm. uh, stylized and very um, almost theatrical. And I was th- trying to figure out a way to like visualize that, and um, so I made the video, and it's called Cockmare Feed, which it's French for Walking Nightmare. And I kind of just I, I felt like I needed some way of getting the visuals out of my head and processing it because I feel like it was. It almost felt like an interpretation of how I get viewed as an artist sometimes. I'm somewhat a novelty, something to be kind of gawked at, especially uh, being someone who struggles with the idea of being an artist versus being a black artist. Does that label trivialize what I work on or what I do, and does it mean that I am caged by it, and is it something that I create for myself, that kind of entrapment? Okay, there's a lot going on in that film. <laughs> <laughs> and the film, the film will be shown, right? There's, a, there's yes. a video showing on the first, on Tuesday night at 5.30, I think at Jesse Hill. So all the people that have submitted videos, you can go along and see them. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And it's Marcellus. Sorry, I pronounced your name oh, no wrong. Word, Marcellus. No <laughs> <laughs> Give me the... French pronunciation. <laughs> so, Robin, you also won one of the 2018 Exhibition Awards, um, and you won a chance to have a show at Resident Arts for your photography portfolio entitled Simulacrum? Uh, simulacrum. Simulacrum. That's Thank my you. version. Yours might be closer. <laughs> Who knows? I don't think so. So tell us what that body of work was about. You know, that body of work, I'm not even sure. It's kind of exciting for me, though, because I think all of the reasons that I was unsure is the reasons why I made it. And so kind of Marcel's touched on that is getting things out of your system. And I guess once they exist translated into the visual realm, perhaps you can kind of divulge alternative meanings or start to piece together the things that are kind of swarming around in the void that is your brain. So yeah, trying to make sense of kind of internal conflicts and then I guess vicariously revealing internal conflicts that I didn't realize were present at all. So essentially it was kind of a collage of upwards of about 35 different photographs, um, varying sizes, and displayed as if it was like a kind of forensic board. 
which is kind of how I feel about it. <laughs> kind of, I don't really know what truths there are there, real information, but kind of just bits and pieces of evidence that I collected. I guess kind of scrappings of my psyche. So, yeah. <laughs> Did it feel good to have all of that out of your psyche? <laughs> oh, yeah. Also terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> there were some grotesque images. <laughs> <laughs> I think it scared my parents more. But <laughs> I can imagine that. So tell us what this year's body of work is about. This is um, something that I think is carried over from that work last year. Since last since the last year, it was kind of a collage. It was really fascinating to see how people navigated this kind of uh, pulsing organism. This kind of like uh, it's, it was kind of a body on its own, um, kind of like a little ecosystem. And so, without having a beginning and an end, people had to kind of find their own way and build their own connection kind of bloodline through the body of work itself and so I kind of just I mean that was fascinating to me and how even when I rearranged the photographs into different patterns or structures how the story would change or not change at all and uh, these kind of relationships and so the the webs that were created by myself and viewers I think led me to question how we create these webs in the first place and how did I create this body of work in the first place so that has stemmed to a fixation on, I guess, how not only artwork itself, but how we experience artwork and how we create artwork. So my piece this year is a dissected cow eyeball, sliced in half, photographed from the inside looking out through the front of the lens and iris and ciliary muscles, and then one photograph of the inside of the eyeball looking out the back of the eyeball. So you have the nervous system and all of the sensors. Those photographs are then printed onto transparencies, clear transparencies. So those lenses become lenses and are also see-through. Those will be framed, hung in the air so that you can experience the entire show looking through these lenses. But the photographs are actually contained within a map of the floor plan of Jesse Hall, which is where our show will be held, uh, with a little arrow on the map pointing, you are here, you're standing here when you're looking at this. And I guess that type of gesture would just be a dissection of ocular vision but also kind of perceptual planes and with the map trying to have at least some ability to locate yourself within that space and how you experience that space yeah on I guess kind of trans-dimensional levels via the portal that is sight that's a lot for the viewer <laughs> to take away. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what I want them to take away, but I, I guess my hope is that really just a self-awareness of how you, how you approach work and how you inflect yourself on the work and how the work inflects yourself on you and um, maybe just kind of a sense of self-awareness as you approach the entire exhibit. And I think that, I mean, one of the reasons we, what, we dissect anything at all is to kind of deconstruct the operations and the systems within a particular organism. And so I guess if we were to do that with our own sight and our own experience, we might have, it might improve our understanding of those processes and then improve our interactions with that. So there's positive progress in the from the viewer, but also myself as the artist, I guess. The great thing I think about the, the undergraduate visual arts and design showcases 
it's not just pretty pictures. All of you are giving us a lot to think about and process and dissect as we wander through the exhibit. Colton, you come at art and design from a different angle, that of an architect. Uh, last year, you were the runner-up for the Applied Design Award for your work, Child Development Laboratory. So what need had you seen that inspired that design? So the, the inspiration for the design was actually music. I took this song that I had actually played for my sister's wedding, and I made it the theme that ran throughout the building. The building's form, the building's feeling, had sort of the translation of the music. So the the melody, I actually took that, mapped it out, gave each note a specific height, and pasted it on the inside of the building, making this uh, the ceiling very wavy and very inspiring. And that was to, you know, really intrigue interest uh, to the students, you know, when they come to this laboratory or daycare, basically, that they're excited to go there, they're wanting to go there and not having to go there. So that was really the the goal for that that project. And it was pretty tricky (laughs) to to turn an audible form into a physical form is um, very challenging and it's very abstract. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the end, it, it was really just a fun project and I tend to use sort of these forms in a lot of the designs that I have and uh, I I think it just adds a different expression in the design as well. And this year your submission for the showcase is a church, is that right, that you designed last semester? Yes, yes it is. So talk about the design challenges and the needs that you think an architect faces for this kind of spiritual space. So it's not just like an ordinary building. <laughs> yeah, it is It is a building, but you have to make that connection between the, a person and a divine presence. You know, there's this administrative stuff in the, the classrooms and all the, the technical stuff that goes into a building, but also you have to create this atmosphere that's appropriate for worship. And I, I think that was the, really the main challenge in doing that. I also wanted to ask you about another work that I was looking at online that you created. And this was in a response to a call for entries for Mm -hmm. the basketry show that was at the Museum of Art and Archaeology. And it's called Flus Ewig, or Paternal (laughs) Flux. And that work has a lot of meaning for you. Tell us briefly about that. Um, This project actually started as a school project. It was a, a contest in our department. But it very shortly turned into something much, much more. During that semester, my my dad actually passed away due to cancer, and this became a memorial for him. And uh, my voice sounds a little shaky. (laughs) And so it, it was really, I put a lot of heart and soul into this, and it was just um, a way, I think, for me to kind of grieve that loss, but also to to honor him in a way that I thought I could best do. Um, and so that that title of Flesewig, it's, it's German. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it so my translation is constantly changing. And that's what the state of life kind of felt right there. You know, there were so many changes that were going on and it, it didn't feel very stable. And that's what the shape is. It's it's always leaning one way or the other. But also the the perspective of the structure. So you, you were able to walk through it and go around it and it actually ended up on a, a pathway near my hometown and 
so the the perspective of it always changed as you were right. walking by, and I thought, well, that's perfect. You know, the the play of shadows and light was really uh, special, and yeah, I was just super proud of it. But also, you know, it. it it brought a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful structure. It reminded me a little bit of the uh, the British Iraqi architect Zahir Hadid. Yes, uh, yeah. Her structures. And I immediately well, when I saw you. that, it reminded me <laughs> I of her. that a huge compliment. <laughs> so, Nicole, how are the winners chosen in the showcase? Well, we have about five exhibition awards that the jurors who come in, the professional jurors, they meet with each student, and they are the ones who determine those specific awards. We have the professional development awards that the the jurors also select. And we do have outside individuals who have their own awards, and they send their own individuals in to take a look at the work and make those selections. So you have two two people you bring in on the awards this this year, mm-hmm. right? On, uh, with uh, some jurors with Brandon. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so there's the, just the three of them that yes, are making just the three decisions. This year. Yeah. Okay, so as well as getting uh, having the chance to be seen, there's also this eight thousand dollars in prize money available, including two two thousand grand prizes for the two mm-hmm. main award winners in artistic expression and applied design. Where does all that money come from? It's a great. Comes from Jim Spain. (laughs) (laughs) From internal at the university. Okay. So tell us who you have as the two jurists here beside Brandon that are coming in. Alice Lambert. She is a documentary filmmaker and artist. She's received numerous awards um, and international acclaim for her work. And she's also on display right now at Sager Broadus Gallery, which is fantastic. Um, And then we also have Travis Fitch who was originally an architect, and he now has a collaborative design studio, an on-demand shop um, out of New York. So it's, it's how difficult is it finding jurors that can cover all of these different disciplines? I mean, you've got two, three jurors, but you're asking them to judge floral design, theater, yes. the lighting, uh, architecture, visual arts, photography. They have to be multidisciplined as jurors, right? Yes, most definitely. That's the most challenging part of this process, being on the, the planning committee. We begin the new year maybe a month after this one's over. And so we are already proposing individuals for the jury positions and the uh, the keynote. So mm-hmm. it's it's a lengthy process. And we they they do have to have a variety of, of disciplines that they can right. relate to, yeah. So tell us what people can see next week. There's three days of events, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. What is the schedule? Yes, so Tuesday is our opening reception with the film screening that starts at 4.30 in Jesse Hall. And then Wednesday, Brandon Odoms, our keynote, will be giving his address, also in Jesse at 5.30. And Thursday is Valentine's night, mm-hmm. but 4.30 that, that evening is the jury panel, where they have a, a dialogue that um, a lot of students come and listen to that, and they get to tell more about their work. Okay. And, and all of those events are free and open to the public, yes. so you can go along to anything. And then the all of the artworks are on display in the Jesse Hall, in the Rotunda area, from Monday through till Friday, through Friday. next week. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay, then it all goes away. It does. And you start on next year's. <laughs> Tuesday there will be snacks. Yes, yeah, so with that opening reception on Tuesday, there will be snacks, yes. So, so a hypothetical question for the three artists here. Uh, the artistic journey begins for many people, artists, with edgy work that criticizes or highlights questionable societal norms. Uh, but then through movement, art movement, or critical mass, or just time going by, big business sees the opportunity to speak 
to a specific generation using a particular artist's work, whether that be visual, musical, poetic, and you have the chance to cash in. Brandon, the big artist coming this year, the Kinnett Speaker, he has been commissioned by Nike, Red Bull and Spotify. How do you feel about that? Having your edgy societal comment work taken by a massive corporation who is, no matter how much they pay you, going to make more money out of it than you do. <laughs> Where's your line? Marcellus. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, personally... I feel like it, it's hard to, as someone who's very much for having work that speaks to activism or speaks to identity and protecting people's um, agency, I think there's only so far you can go before money or other forces that are like kind of come into play. Because artists who have that background and do that sort of work but then are commissioned by larger companies, I think all power to you. Because if they're interested in communicating their message in the way you do it, they're either going to ask you or they're going to get someone else to make something like you do. And I think it's almost... I would If I made something good enough to be used in such a way or my skills are at that level, I would consider a slap in the face to see like a, essentially a, a replication. And so I feel like you really have to be able to take those opportunities and, and just go with them. At least that's, that's the way that I end up feeling about it because... Ultimately, I mean, we're artists and we have to live too. <laughs> it's nice to break money off of it a little bit. That's true. <laughs> Robin, if you can imagine a, a business, a, a big corporate conglomerate using your work, like who would, who would be on your wish list? Oh my gosh. Ooh, I wish I had Marcel's question because I was okay. prepared. No, <laughs> my wish list. I mean, even like Adidas, you know, they made those sneakers lately completely out of like recycled materials from the ocean and things like that. And I think it's like really incredible that it's trending that way that big corporations will include artists. I think it used to be the case that they would find an artist they liked and they would style a shoot like that artist. But instead, now they're just hiring the artist directly. I think that's really exciting that there's less separation. Um, and I think it's good that we're collaborating and kind of sharing information and trying to, I don't know, I'm, I'm excited about it. If, if I had somebody, oh gosh, <laughs> you don't really have to answer that I question. I, I'll, I'll I tell you, I really want to work with Lady Gaga and The Voids. I want to like make music videos and things like that because I mean, the amount of publicity, like even above like ads and commercials, music videos are popping. So many, so many viewers constantly, and I think that's something that's like really relevant. And it kind of always has been. So I think I would love to get into that type of scene I guess just the vast majority of variety of people that are in touch with it but. Lady Gaga always listens in on the show so I'm sure she'll be calling you momentarily that would be great <laughs> and Colton I mean, you live in the world of commercial enterprises yeah. and architects yeah. <laughs> maybe not quite so relevant <laughs> thank you all so much Nicole Johnston Marcellus Cooper Robin Heathcote and Colton Becker the University of Missouri's undergraduate visual arts and design showcase can be seen in the Jesse Rotunda next week from Monday to Friday and you can hear the keynote speaker Brandon and Odoms at 5.30 next Wednesday at Jesse Hall. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with Claire Seiler, University of Missouri Assistant Professor of Theatre and Director of the upcoming The Every 28 Hours Plays. I'll be back after this short break. Don't wander off.
Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia and to my next guest, Dr. Claire Seiler, Assistant Professor in the University of Missouri Theatre Department and Director of the Every 28 Hours Plays, which opens at the Rheinsberger Theatre on Wednesday, the 20th of February. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the Every 28 Hours Plays is a national project that started in 2015 in response to the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Tell us the premise of the production and how it all got started. Well, you were recapping much of it in terms of the events of Ferguson in 2014. And, you know, that 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 event and all of the things that it entailed inspired a lot of social movements. One of them was by artists. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which has a very vibrant community-based outreach program, it's spearheaded uh, by Bill Rausch at the time, he just stepped down, was interested in what they could do and what they could take essentially their cultural capital to uh, share and and come in and, and support artists in responding to the events of Ferguson. So they have a community director named Claudia Alec, and she came to Ferguson and the surrounding areas and met with a variety of local artists, one of them being Professor Jacqueline Thompson, who's at UMSL, University of Missouri, St. Louis, who is a fantastic director and actress and professor um, and really a a key member of the St. Louis theater community. And then, so they kind of put some ground roots feeling out what St. Louis wanted and needed. And then the Oregon Shakespeare Festival then teamed up with the One Minute Play Festival and sent a call to playwrights all around the country. And we're talking um, playwrights of all levels. So Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights like Lynn Nottage, who just wrote Sweat, that's on Broadway. Um, David Henry Huang, who wrote M. Butterfly, and then a variety of people who are university professors. So uh, different levels of playwrights, if you will. And they all decided to write a one-minute play in response to the events of Ferguson. And those dealt with a variety of things. What does race mean? What does it look like in terms of like a black body versus an Asian body? How does our culture receive those different bodies as racialized? Other people wanted to write about the grief that mothers and family members feel when this event happens. Some of people wanted to look at the historical dimensions and, and compare this to slavery and lynching and the prison industrial complex. So there's a variety of different responses, just as the complexity of Ferguson itself had so many perspectives. The one minute plays yielded a kind of multifaceted response. So after that, this is a long answer to your no, question. Good. <laughs> is they they compiled seventy one minute plays and they're grouped thematically around different themes within this sort of broader social movement. So those themes are community, history, race, police, protest, and then they opened up the project for people all over the country to produce and they can take as many they can produce all 70 of the one minute plays or they can take and pick what they want but all of it is a grassroots movement that seeks to get this broader story and responses from a variety of perspectives intersectional perspectives to engage with police brutality with anti-black racism and with our culture and this moment and this current civil rights movement and moment in which we are trying to grapple with our country at a time that is quite divisive. So all of that to say, these productions of every 28 
Hours plays have been happening for the last four years all over the country at prestigious regional theaters, at universities, um, you know, from the West Coast to the East Coast. And it seemed like to me at the University of Missouri, where we were less than two hours from Ferguson, that we should also be engaging with this project. And so why now in 2019? Why not a couple of years ago when we were having so many issues and conversations at Mizzou? Absolutely. Well, um, this is my third year at Mizzou. <laughs> so Good job. One answer is I wasn't here. Um, and then last year, I did direct a production called The Green Duck Lounge that looked at civil rights history within the state and particularly within Kansas City. That production was by Michelle Tyreen Johnson. That's the playwright of that play, The Green Duck Lounge. And Michelle is a Kansas City-based playwright, but also a journalist. She works for NPR in Kansas City and a lawyer graduate of Mizzou's uh, law school. And that story in particular told the story of Leon Jordan, who was a key civil rights activist in the Kansas City region. And so that play was a really positive experience for the students, for the audience members, for the talkback panels we had afterwards. And it occurred to me, okay, we have turned our eyes to Kansas City. We must now turn our eyes to St. Louis as well. Not that these metropolitan areas are the only things in Missouri, but they are key spaces for us. And why is it called the Every 28 Hours Play? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, That is the statistic that these playwrights that were all given this call to engage with. And the statistic is that every 28 hours, a black person is killed in this country by police or vigilante. And that data was compiled in 2012, so actually pre-Mike Brown's death. And it looked at the number of people who had been killed by the police who were black, and it was 313 for the year of 2012. Now, the data is hard, or challenging rather, because it's contested oftentimes, and part of that is because the federal government does not count the amount of people um, that die at the hands of the police. The Guardian... I was going to say, interesting, the British paper, The Guardian, does count them. Yes, yes Diana. So. <laughs> yes. so in response to 2014 and the events of Ferguson, The Guardian actually took it upon themselves, this British newspaper, mm. to begin a project called The Counted. And they build off of the work done in 2012 by Arlene Eisen, who's that's the researcher who compiled the 313 people who mm. had died in 2012, which, if you do the math, makes it roughly every 28 hours a black person is being killed in this country by police or vigilante. And by vigilante, they mean security guards or any sort of authority figure that wields a gun and can legally not be prosecuted. Right. So there are, I counted 73 of the one-minute plays. I think maybe a couple more have been added. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're presented in, like you said, nine different categories plus a finale piece. So give Mm -hmm. us the arc of the production, those nine categories, how they flow together. Well, this is the exciting thing. I mean, as a theater artist, I've never, and as a director, I've never directed a play that is, you know, it's almost like these are little bites of information that collectively sort of begin to pearl, have like an effect that they layer on top of each other. And that's intentional because it also speaks to the sort of piling up effect of the tragedies that are upon us constantly and that we don't have time to recover from one before another one is there. It also lets you have so many different perspectives that get to be living together, coexisting, and not always in a resolve kind of way. But the piece begins acknowledging this statistic and laying that out for the audience and then it moves to a kind of contestation of what is race and it's a 
14-member ensemble of young people who are very diverse. And so you hear about race from different perspectives. Then it moves to what are police perspectives on this. And so that's an interesting part of the production as well. You hear from a white policeman and the challenges that he faces. Um, you hear from a black policeman and the challenges that he faces. Um, you, fe- you hear from different characters that engage with the police and may or may not be profiled in particular ways. And then the production moves on to look at protest and uh, actually brings journalism into that as well in terms of what journalists choose to cover when these events happen. There's an indictment of, you know, oftentimes the root social issues in terms of jobs, schools, resources in a, a writ large kind of sense are not being offered to the black community. And so there's it's a really interesting piece there. Then we move on to think about mothers and their responses to this and sort of the collective group of women who have lost sons and daughters as well, but it is primarily sons. And then we move on to really hear about what we might be able to do. Actually, there's a piece that engages the perspective of guns. And um, it's called The Bullets, The Bullets on Strike. Strike meaning, you know, a double entendre of, or or rather a a pun meaning like the strike of a bullet, but also the strike of ceasing to be active. Like, we don't want to do this work anymore. And the piece ends with a kind of pileup of names of people who have lost their lives. So... It's, it's a powerful piece. It is, it is serious in tone, but you also would laugh and, and uh, there's moments of satire. And we try to kind of cover the gamut. Are the plays are strictly one minute? They have to be exactly one minute? Can they go over? Can they be under? Exactly. It's that, yes. Okay. Um, so some of them might last up to three minutes. Some of them might be a pretty swift 45 seconds. So okay. um, <laughs> it's, it's all of the above. I mean, n- nothing goes over, I would say, four to five minutes. But it is a variety of different durations that are just short. So you get a snapshot of someone's experience. And you, I mean, as a playwright, you need to be really succinct. You haven't got time to waste on frivolous ideas. I mean, it's just say say what you need to say. So exactly. it's very direct. So that, I guess that must be both challenges and joys in directing something. So many short plays where you've only got that tiny tiny length of time to it's, say it. Do you have to kind of speed actors up or how, how do you direct that? Yeah, I, I told the cast that like our key question is how do we create truth, truthful characters and really engage very complex social issues in one minute? <laughs> and then do it again and again and again. So part of that is that the pieces are all stylistically very different. Some of them are kind of traditional realism, meaning like people are talking and on a couch having in a uh, conversation that would look like any conversation you or I would have sitting on a couch. And other pieces are spoken word. Other pieces are way more abstract and expressionistic. So there's there's a variety of kind of performance genres that the audience member will engage with, which has been, in a way, really fun as a director and as as I think the cast has had fun with it as well, dipping into these different kinds of styles. As a director, do you have a choice in the order that the plays are presented or is it pretty strictly laid down by the national organization and in what order they should come? The national organization doesn't tell you that they say you know they say we want you to have agency in how you choose to curate these plays. 
but I think that the order that the sequence that they give you really does lend itself to sort of an inquiry into these different broader themes related to the broader categories of police brutality and racism. They're being kind of pre-curated. I'm imagining putting up an art show, which I used to do, where every work was done by a different artist. They had framed it differently. They had done different matting. There were different mediums, different colors. Some had big gold frames. Some had simple wooden frames. And you had to try and put them all together into an arc of a story, which is exactly what I guess has been done with the Every 28 Hours plays. It is, but we are we are, in our production, we are doing 28 of the plays. And that'll be a roughly 45-minute evening Um, 45 to 50 minutes. So we're not doing all of them. And so I did have some choices in terms of, you know, which ones you take out and then how those the ones that remain fit together. For example, in the section on police, one of my conceits or my visions for the play is that it's metatheatrical. So I want people to recognize we're doing a play. This is not intended to like um, have any, there's no willing suspension of disbelief. Like, nope, we're all in a play. And so the young men who perform the role of policemen all wear the same hat and so they each take off the hat to give to the next person who plays the role of the policeman so you can see a sort of through line with those pieces that are about the police and you can also see how a policeman um, in this case they are men could be anyone and really can take you know the form of variety of bodies and so this is not just about white policemen Right. And then after the 45 minutes, after the play is over, you have a chance for the audience to uh, a talk back session, a question and answer, talking about the issues that have been raised. Is that after every production? It is. And this is something we did last year in our production of Green Duck Lounge as well. Um, It's a way to broaden what theater can be. So theater, yes, is the performance part, but I think it's also the critical thinking that happens afterwards or the resonance or what leaves a residue for the audience member to kind of stay with them. And it can be really helpful if there's a conversation that helps you begin that. And so what I have found is, at least in what I learned from doing Green Duck and other sort of post-production talkbacks, is that it's sometimes audience members need a little moment to catch their breath and mm. to receive the production, and particularly whenever you're engaging with um, challenging and complex issues. So we have a panel that is going to be present for every evening after the production. Professor Jacqueline Thompson, who I mentioned earlier, the professor at UMSL and a you know very vibrant artist in the St. Louis theater community and helped spearhead this project, will be with us courtesy of the Division of Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity at the University of Missouri. And so she'll be with us each night. And then we also have a rotating panel of excellent, amazing scholars. So Dr. Sherelle Luckett, who studies black performance at the University of Cincinnati and a proud alum of our PhD program in the Department of Theater, will be with us Friday night. Dr. Ashley Woodson will be with us. She's a assistant professor of social studies education in the College of Education, will be with us Thursday night. Dr. Kevin McDonald, who is the Vice Chancellor for Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity at Mizzou, will be with us on Sunday. And so we have these kind of really fantastic scholars who are who have studied these issues and have per- real perspectives on them to begin the conversation. And I've also asked our cast to essentially create questions ahead of time. What do you want to know from Professor Thompson, who was the St. Louis community organizer? And what do you want to know from our vice chancellor of inclusion, diversity, and equity? How has our 
production engaged with broader issues our campus needs to attend to. And then after we have those conversations, then we'll open it up to the audience to to maybe comment on anything that's already kind of being circulated in our in our dialogue. There is uh, another play on in town which opens tonight, the JT Rogers play called White People, Mm. which is being produced at Talking Horse Theatre. It's on this weekend and next weekend. And that asks the question, kind of from the other side, what does it mean to be a white American? And it's a a pretty brutal and candid meditation on race and on language in our culture. And uh, again, after that, I think Kevin McDonald is going to be there for two sessions to do a talk back because uh, so many questions arise and you have so many things that you you want to ask as a result of that. So I'm, I'm glad that you are also offering that because I don't think it's the kind of play that you can necessarily just walk away from. There are things that you want to ask and say afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I am not as familiar with white people, but I do know a bit about it, and I think it's a really interesting premise. But it it raises a broader idea that, I mean, I am a white woman, um, and so whiteness and issues that are related to blackness are interconnected. Um, my whiteness, it's constituted by blackness, at least particularly in this part of the country where I live right now, where we live right now, um, where that white-black binary is you know, a very strong organizer of our society. It organizes where people go, where people live, what they have access to. And, and oftentimes, Race is constituted as something that's not white. (laughs) So white people don't have a race somehow. Mm. They are not the racialized people. They are are sort of normative. And and that keeps white people in a sort sort of psychic freedom space where they don't think that any of these issues are related to them. Um, And so one of the things I do in my classes and in this kind of work is to ask white people to engage with these issues that have for so long seemed inappropriate for us to talk about, like they're somehow not part of our world too. Right. And I I think sometimes I'm not from this country. Yes. (laughs) Not that that racism is exclusive to this country. It exists everywhere. But I I do find that here I'm almost nervous to ask a question of things that I don't understand because my question question might be insensitive. Right. But I'm never going to know the answer unless I can ask the question. And so I think it's sometimes I feel very anxious around this issue because I, I don't want to offend anybody with my lack of knowledge, with my insensitivity as coming from a different uh, culture or a different country. And while I think, obviously, yes, you are not from the U.S., I think a lot of white U.S. folks also have been socialized in those ways, that it's inappropriate for us to talk about it. It's somehow rude or taboo for us to acknowledge inequities and segregation that, of course, still exists in our world. So, um, you know, that's the way I grew up, too. I had to learn and, and think about myself as a racialized person in this country and to and I'm and it's messy I'm not always good at it I mess up I put my foot in my mouth and I I want and ask for my colleagues of color to to tell me when I mess up because I will Um, I think we all will but I think we have to do the work to be uncomfortable and it is challenging but it's important that we can then have clearer conversations and get more specific about our language in trying to address some of these issues. Right. I had an author on the show uh, the other week, 
uh, Alison Kofelt was talking about her trip to Haiti and her book mm. called Maps of Lines We Draw. And we were, we were both saying how to be able to travel is this wonderful privilege. And Absolutely. so I have lived in cultures where I am the minority. And that's, uh, that's a, a wonderful experience Absolutely. to have had that, of course, so many people in a country that is as large as America, where so few people do have passports and access to go and see other cultures and to live in other cultures, they don't have access to that feeling of what it is to be a minority person, where when you travel, you do get to do that. It's true. I mean, it's, it's this consistent opening up of perspectives. And that's what I think so much of education about is about is sort of a decentering of yourself to say, wow, my experience in the world is just one. It's an important one. It's mine. But how does it coexist with others? And how are those equally as important? As part of the process of doing the play, I mean, this idea of writing a one minute segment, is this something that you've opened up so that the local with, within the university or within the local community, people can uh, go through that process of writing a one minute play? Is there is there a second part to the every 28 hours plays, which is every 28 hours play as it concerns the Mizzou community? Uh, another play. It's a fantastic idea. I love it. And and other programs who have used this national platform have done that. We hadn't planned on it this go round, mm-hmm. um, but it is a fantastic idea. And I do think um, we at the University of Missouri have a really strong playwriting program. We have undergraduates and graduate students consistently writing plays, winning national awards for their plays. And so it does seem sort of like an organic next step. Right. Do you think that all theater is a political act? Personally, I do. (laughs) Yeah, I think it always has and always will be. I mean, if we're in a Western tradition, the Greeks were not doing performance just for any old reason. It was tied up in their religious and social ideology. And I think it has continued to be, particularly the the traditions that I am most familiar with in the West. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of productions are focused mostly on on entertainment or escapism, and that's great, too. We need that as well. And I don't think productions should be lacking a sense of pleasure and enjoyment, and ARBS does that. It seeks to do that. But yeah, ideally, I think you, if you ask somebody to come and sit down for two hours, you should let them think about something for a good amount of time afterwards. Mm. Do, you, do you think that uh, it's a cathartic process, the Every 28 Hours plays, the people, the cast that are in it, the people that have seen it is there a feeling of speaking openly being able to deal with something that's been hidden well i don't think while i obviously very much love and am dedicated to the practice of theater i don't think we're necessarily solving um policy (laughs) issues i think ours is a sort of active raising consciousness and in that regard yes i do i can't say for the audience yet because we're not there but i can say for the cast of 14 undergraduates and my assistant director who is Xiomara Cornejo who is a graduate student um, working on her PhD in our theater department it certainly has been a a space where really challenging conversations can happen where consciousness is raised where different perspectives are engaged in ways that I hadn't thought of that before so in that regard I mean if we're opening up catharsis to being a broader kind of experience that allows you to engage with these different human perspectives then then yeah I think we've done a little bit of that tell us a little bit about the cast who are in the play are they all 
students at the university? They are. They're all students. Thir- there's 14 of them, and 13 of them are undergraduates, and one is a master's student. There are students who identify, and it was something that I, you know, I really spoke to the students about whenever we auditioned for the play. I said, this production's going to ask you to use your body in ways that you're commenting on your body. So that may not be something all undergrads want or are ready to do, and I absolutely respect that. So, But I tried to be transparent about, you know, if you have an, a body that is received as black or received as white or received as Asian, then that's something we're going to engage with in this play. So many of them were excited to actually do that, to, to say, yes, my body says something to the world, and I, wanna, I want to also be conscious of that. Tell us a little bit about when, remind us when the play is on and how people can get tickets to see it. Yes, so the production is February 20th through 24th at the Rheinsberger Theatre. Um, the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night productions are all at 7.30, and our Sunday performance at 2 p.m. is at 2 p.m., to get tickets, I think I may have to rely on your information. You can get tickets from the box office, uh, or you can get them online at theatre, spelt R-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E, theatre.missouri.edu, or you can call 573-882-7529, and tickets are $16. Is there anything else you want to add about the production before we finish, Claire? I will say, if you call this week, so ahead of time, a week ahead of time, you can get the early bird special, and it's $14. Okay, $14 if you call, call now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Claire Thank Siler. you, Diana. The Every 28 Hours plays can be seen at the Rheinsberger Theatre from Wednesday the 20th to Saturday the 23rd at 7.30pm and on Sunday the 24th at 2pm. You can get a ticket by calling 573-882-7529. They're $16 or if you call this week, they're just $14. Um, I hope everybody goes to see it. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts and as usual, we will end the show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next seven days. There's always a lot going on. Claire, you are free to stay and listen or free to wander off. Thanks, Diana. <laughs> this is opening weekend for Talking Horse Theatre's production of the J.T. Rogers play, White People. Billed as a dark comedy, though it's really a drama with a few pithy moments, the play asks the question, what does it mean to be a white American? And it's a candid meditation on race and language in our culture. Tonight and tomorrow, the show opens at 7.30pm, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday. The Sunday performance will be followed by a question and answer session with Kevin MacDonald, the Vice-Chancellor of Inclusion, Diversity and Equity at Mizzou. Tickets are $15 and the show continues next weekend. With a blend of indie, cabaret and world music, Dvorchkas perform at the Blue Note tonight. You might recognise them from their award-winning soundtrack to the movie Little Miss Sunshine. The show starts at 8pm and tickets are $25. And at Rose Music Hall tonight, improvisational rock band Aqueous from Buffalo, New York are on the stage at 9 o'clock. Saturday evening at the Missouri Theatre, there is a free Columbia Civic Orchestra concert of a Mexican celebration featuring conductor Stefan Freund and the MU Percussion. The concert starts at 7.30 and it is free and open to all. At the Blue Note, you can hear Nashville artist John Langston in concert. Tickets for his show are $15 and that show starts at 8. And at Rose Music Hall, Arkansas return to Columbia with their mix of bluegrass, newgrass, blues, folk and funk. Catch them at 9 o'clock tomorrow night for a $7 admission charge. On Sunday afternoon, the 9th Annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival returns to the Blue Note from 2 till five with a program of 11 films live music and special features tickets are $15 
Excuse me, with funds raised going to support Missouri River Relief. Also on Sunday afternoon, there is a reception at the Boone History and Culture Centre for their current art show called The Map of the Invisible, Playing with Colour and Movement, an exhibition of the artwork of Gladys Swan. That reception is from 1 till 3 and is free and open to all. And the art show continues through March the 31st. Next Monday, the award-winning Canadian Brass performs on 24-karat gold-plated Canadian Brass Collection Instruments at Jesse Hall. If you need some uplifting, that is the place to be. Tickets start at $18 and that show starts at 7. On Tuesday afternoon, the opening reception for the University of Missouri's Undergraduate Visual Arts and Design Showcase will take place in Jesse Hall Rotunda at 4.30, followed by a video premiere screening of all of the students' videography work, and that's going to be at 5.30. And they are back. Talking Horse Theatre's resident improv troupe, the Stable Boys, will be performing a Valentine's-inspired evening of long-form improv comedy next Tuesday and a show called Stable Hearts Can't Be Broken. Tickets are $10 and it usually sells out, so get them soon. Also returning to All Street Studios next Tuesday is their monthly Hearing Voices, Seeing Visions program. This month with poet Andrew Mulvania and photographer Deanna Dykeman talking about their works. The evening starts at 7pm and that's free to attend. On Wednesday afternoon at 5.30, artist Brandon Odoms will give a talk at Jesse Hall and titled Between Me and We, The Responsibility of a Contemporary Artist. Brandon's talk is the keynote address for the Visual Arts and Design Showcase and is free to attend and open to all. Next Thursday, Valentine's Day, it is opening night of a one-weekend run of the Tennessee Williams classic play Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which will be at the Stevens College Playhouse. That show starts at 7.30 next Thursday and tickets are 16 uh, for adults or $8 for students and senior citizens. It's also opening night at the Little Theatre in Jefferson City for their production of the ABBA musical Mamma Mia. This is also a one weekend run with only three evening and one matinee performances. Tickets are $20 and the showtime next Thursday is 7.30. And in case you're wondering, the Little Theatre is located at the Miller Performing Arts Centre. At Columbia College's Sid Larson Gallery, there is an opening reception and a chance to hear artist Felicia Leach talk about her work. That's a free event and starts at 3 o'clock next Thursday. At the University of Missouri on Thursday afternoon there is an award ceremony at 5.30 where you can find out who the winners are of this year's Visual Arts and Design Showcase. In Sedalia on Thursday evening there is an opening reception for The Hill Becomes the Valley featuring the collection of American landscape photography from the P. John Owen collection which was recently gifted to the Daum Gallery of Contemporary Art and that's where the opening is. That reception is from 6 to 8pm. And finally at the Blue Note next Thursday you can hear alt-country folk artist Todd Snyder in concert. Tickets for his show are $30. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.